At least 28 asylum seekers are known to have died, and authorities have warned the toll is likely to rise. So mainstream Australians have been sold down the drain, increasing numbers of culturally incompatible refugees and migrants are entering our country. And of course, every government goes up here. With no end in sight to the current wave of asylum seekers, nine years can reveal the true welfare cost to Australian taxpayers. This is a Dear listeners, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to the second episode of Friday Night Live, where we bring into focus uh, the important issues and explore them from perspectives unheard in the mainstream media. I'm your host, Nasa Kat, broadcasting live in the city of Fairfield in Sydney, Australia. I would like to acknowledge the Cabrigal clan of the Darug Nation as the traditional owners of the land. The past few weeks and months and years, we've seen and heard a lot of news about the Gillard government's policies towards asylum seekers. You've also no doubt seen pictures and clips of the riots and the burning detention centres around Australia and in Christmas Island. Public sentiment has been angry and intolerant. Many commentators wondered if that was the way Australia was thanked for hosting asylum seekers. Others called for them to be sent back where they came from. The Gillard government avoiding the Pacific solution so as not to be seen towing the Howard line is now negotiating with Malaysia to get a type of a flesh trade in effect, all the while human beings are treated and looked upon as less than human. For the first time in Australia, I hope, people are crying over the rights of cattle while in the same breath underlying the rights of innocent hopeless refugees. Q-jumpers, fobs, illegals, economic migrants, these and more are the labels and myths hovering around in the media and the politosphere whenever this divisive issue comes up. Xenophobia, unfounded fears and outright racism are exploited to bring in more votes and a larger audience. Meanwhile, thousands of innocent people, innocent until proven guilty, men, women and children, languish in detention centres for months and years. These detention centres, of course, are funded by millions of your tax dollars. The word FOB has its origins in Hawaii in the 1960s. Local Hawaiians used it to refer to white people who came from the mainland U.S. to Hawaii. It was used to refer to white people who weren't up to date on the culture. Since then, it has taken on a drastically different meaning in many parts of the world where immigration is an issue. Today, we're going to speak to a unique group of individuals who have, through the past few years, spent countless hours and efforts to give what little support they can to this issue. There are, of course, many other activists, volunteers, artists, and professionals out there doing this great work, and we salute them for making Australia more human. We start with our first guest is Anna Rose Robinson. Welcome to the studio. Thank you. So um, after briefly yet notoriously serving as evil overlord of the universe, Anna Rose Robinson spent three months in 2010 volunteering in Curtin and Christmas Island detention centers. She witnessed firsthand the visa processing suspension being announced to Afghan asylum seekers and the boat crash tragedy of September 15th. She is currently studying a degree in international studies at Sydney University and hopes one day to work in UNHCR. She deeply, yet inexplicably, loves polar bears. So um, I actually had to read that because she sent it to me as a blurb. So tell me, there's a, a crazy dock-shaped island in the middle of the ocean. Why did you go there? Um, well, it was actually a really obscure story in that I met a guy at a music festival who was a friend of a friend who was volunteering on Christmas Island. 
um, and just said you should apply, you should um, look into it if you're interested. And obviously, like everyone else in Australia, I'd heard about it on the news and heard all the political debate and that kind of thing. So suddenly I was already interested. Um, but that point that made me sign up to volunteer. Um, originally I went to Curtin Detention Centre, which is in Western Australia, and I went in June and September, and then I went to Christmas Island over November, December, early January. Uh, that's great. Uh, now tell me, when you uh, mentioned about the suspension of visas for Afghan uh, refugees, it, it doesn't really make sense to people who haven't been there or, how, or who aren't aware of the situation. So what does that mean for them, really? So what happened was in June 2010, um, the Rudd government was slightly, I think it was Rudd still then, anyway, was slightly freaked out about how many asylum seekers were arriving um, and put a freeze on the visa processing for both Sri Lankan and Afghan asylum seekers. And the purpose of this was to update the country information because, um, as was argued, the situations had changed and they wanted to um, process people and a new country information. Um, but the way this was done was that people who arrived were not allowed to even lodge their claim for asylum for quite a number of months until that country information had been updated. So a lot of people were sitting in detention centres not even allowed to lodge their claim to begin to be processed, just sitting there waiting to even get to that first stage. And um, again, a question of a person who hasn't been to that part of the world or hasn't been involved in this sort of issue. What's so bad about it? I mean, they were in boats, they were in refugee camps somewhere out in, you know, some third world country. Now they're in, you know, nice accommodation with good free food every day. What's the problem with, you know, waiting in these places yeah. for a few more months? It's funny because when I first got there, that was what I thought too. I was actually really pleasantly surprised with the detention centers. I thought, oh, the facilities, they're not that bad. They're quite nice. But I think um, the, the big issue is the weight and the inertia that comes with being in detention. And it's really got nothing to do with the facilities. It's the fact you're sitting there for months and months and months and even years um, with immense tension with your family overseas in danger you've got no power to act on their behalf um, and you're not you're not going anywhere the fact that you're there for longer doesn't mean you'll get a better visa or even that you will get a visa for certain so it's a really pointless wait um, you're waiting with a lot of other people who've been in massive trauma situations so a lot of people have mental issues um, people are being rejected. It's an incredibly tense and frustrating environment. And it's also incredibly boring. And it's months of just being bored and upset. And it's just really um, terrible for people's mental health. Okay. Um, that must be very hard for you. How, how many months did you stay in Christmas Island? Um, I was in Christmas Island for two months and Curtin for one month. Okay. And uh, how sort of how difficult was it for you to stay for, there for two months? Because I'm guessing that Christmas Island is quite a small place, and so is Curtin is quite you know out um, mm -hmm. in the you know uh, out in the middle of nowhere. So um, you would have also lived very similar, though you know you're of course free. You, li you lived uh, lived very similar circumstances to those of the asylum seekers. So how was it living there? In Christmas Island or mm -hmm. Curtin? In, in both. I mean, Christmas Island first. Um, in Christmas Island. Christmas Island is a, a very strange place. It's in the middle of the Indian Ocean. It's hours from Australia. It's much closer to Southeast Asia. 
Um, the food is revolting because it's brought over from mainland Australia and when um, the oceans are rough, the food boats don't come very regularly and then it's just disgusting. Um, and that was food for everyone on the island, but especially for the asylum seekers because we ate the same meals and they were just disgusting. Um, the period I was there was monsoon period, so it just poured with rain all day, every day, um, which kind of meant the limited activities that the asylum seekers were able to partake in were actually even more of them were gone because you just couldn't go outside. It was just pouring with rain constantly. Okay. In Curtin, when I was there, it was about 45 degrees, um, roughly pretty much every day. It's in the middle of the desert, obviously. Um, you get very used to the heat quickly, but standing outside is a huge shock. It's very hard to be outside, so people tended to do all their activities at night um, and sleep during the day as much as possible. Okay. Um, just a reminder to our listeners out there, if you want to call at any time, you can call us on our phone number, 02-9724-3355, or you can uh, leave a message on the Facebook group or event, and we will uh, read it and reply to you. Um, so, Anaras, tell us about the boat uh, that crashed. Um, mm. About, you know, sort of where were you? Did you actually see it, or did you just sort of hear about it? Yeah, I saw it. Um where we drove past it on the way going not like not very up close we were driving up the hill and we saw it from below um it was a horrible just a really really awful thing obviously um there were people who lost their families they knew their families were coming um and then found out that they'd been killed um they were a couple i know were separated in the water and for nine hours didn't know if the other had survived um it was just yeah a huge tragedy mm. and um i remember in the media at the time i mean most of the uh, uh sort of the argument and the uh, discussion was about whether they should have been brought in from christmas island to um i think melbourne or sydney it was i don't remember mm. um to to see their loved ones being buried and you know a lot of people sort of completely forgot that these people you know went through all this ordeal and then ended up, you know, on the rocks of Christmas Island and they just remembered about, you know, the whatever it is, the 13,000 or however much money it took to bring them in. Yeah, it's really sad because the whole issue is very dehumanized, I think, um, in that these are, these are people and these are people's families and they died and it was horrible. It was a huge tragedy. Um, and their, the survivors and their families have to keep on living. Um, and I'm still good friends with quite a few people who survived or who lost people. And every day is still a struggle getting on without their families, mm. um, without the people that they loved most in the world who are now gone. It uh, must be very difficult for them. Mm. So um, right now you're, of course, uh, being Sydney, the closest uh, detention centre to us. And I guess we're fortunate in a way that wherever we are, there's a detention centre close to us. Mm. Um, do you go visit um, these same people who were in Christmas Island who are now in Villawood? Yeah, so the people from the boat crash were all released into the community after a great, it must be noted, only after a great deal of community pressure, not because of any particular um, incentive on the behalf of the government itself. Um, so I visit those people in the community and then I also do visit asylum seekers who are now in Villawood. Um, obviously it's very sad going to Villawood and seeing asylum seekers you knew in other detention centres who have just been here for so long and through such a long stage of their processing, um, especially when some of them get accepted, some of them get rejected and it just really does seem like luck, just potluck. 
Okay. And um, I mean, does that sort of give you um, a better idea about why they get involved in riots? And, you know, another question is when there is a riot, you know, how many people actually get involved in the riot? Is it a whole detention center? Is it just two or three guys? Riots are very funny things. In Christmas Island, um, the situation is just so tense and that people have so little power that frustrations boil over and that's just inevitable in that when you put people in that kind of situation tensions are going to boil over um, people who have so little ability to act are going to lash out eventually um, and I think it's really unfortunate that it's always framed the riots as though people are really dangerous and really awful because it's just people who are very very frustrated and I often wonder if my brother was in a detention center how he'd act and I know that he'd probably do the exact same thing and I don't think less of him for that because you can understand when people are put in that situation why they act the way they do. Okay, um, I also remember I think about four weeks ago um, there was a man who uh, climbed up on the um, Sydney Harbour Bridge and he stayed there for a number of hours mm. and he had, a, I think, a banner with him as well. Yeah. And he was um, angry about child laws or something. And he yeah, couldn't yeah, see yeah, his children. And a lot of people, you know, um, sort of um, understood his plight. Yeah. You know, even though they didn't agree with him. But that didn't seem to happen when the riots uh, went on in the detention centers. Yeah. It, everybody just seemed to be angry at them for being, you know, not thankful enough. Yeah, it's really sad that. And when I was on Christmas Island, at one stage, the media turned up at one of the centers. Um, and a lot of the men there really took the opportunity and went up to the fence and started, you know, shouting and saying, please, where is the UN? Why is no one helping us? We just want to be free and that kind of thing. Um, and when you are there and you see that and it's just a few men in a very big open setting, it looks very different than on the TV screen when it's zoomed close in. It looks like there's a huge crowd of people. Um, and I was with one of the men the day after when it came up on the TV and he was just disgusted and he said they made us look like animals. Um, and he was just so horrified that that was how he would appear to the Australian people when he is, you know, an educated, intelligent, well-thought man. Um, and he just hated it. And he was like, we, like, they used the media, they attempted to use the media to get their point across. Um, and it just totally backfired. And it was just very sad to see. Mm, I guess it's it's always very difficult to uh, you know try and appear human when you're in jail, mm. and when you sort of have no control over you know who visits you or what you're doing when you're being visited. So they could just be, I guess you know going to eat something. Or yeah, and it's sad because it's kind of how can how can you make yourself seem sympathetic? Because if people climb on a roof with a banner and say "UN help us," it is incredible that that doesn't seem sympathetic that still is framed by the media as somehow a bad thing that people are doing this are acting in a totally peaceful way people who've not broken any laws but are still locked up are then protesting this in a peaceful way and this is still framed as a massively negative thing okay and um let's i mean other than visiting the um the refugees at uh, the detention centers what else can people do i mean uh, really people are quite limited in what they do because um, you know politicians yeah. really run everything don't they? I think people can um, try and look into the issue just a little bit um, it's hard because obviously most people don't really have the time or effort to get their news from anywhere else but the major newspapers um, but if you accept this uncritically I think that you are going to get a view of asylum seekers that is wrong and to an extent I do think we have a responsibility to educate ourselves when human rights abuses are occurring in our own country um, to not kind of 
implicitly and passively let this happen, but to rather find out what's going on and try and write this, because it seems like we're the only people who can when the government is so unwilling to themselves. Great. Um, thank you very much uh, for your time, Anna Rose. Thank you. Uh, and, you know, speaking of actually doing something about mm -hmm. this, uh, we have with us now uh, two artists, special people with very nice facial hair, um, Anton and Safdar from UTS. So Anton is a visual artist who is completing a practice-based PhD at Sydney College of the Arts. His grandfather's internment as an enemy alien during World War II in Australia provides the context of his research. Anton has exhibited locally and internationally in, in addition to tutoring and some work in the events industry. Anton is working with artists in detention in Villawood. Do you have a surname, Anton? Uh, yes, Pulverenti. Okay. Yeah, it's a Sicilian name. Um, my grandparents immigrated from Sicily uh, in the early part of the 20th century, um, and uh, they were promised uh, land if they uh, farmed the sugarcane fields up there. Okay. Uh, and they did so successfully uh, until the Second World War, when uh, the political situation radically changed, and overnight they went from being naturalised British subjects to uh, potential saboteurs and fifth columnists. Okay. Um, my grandfather was a sort of a prominent leader in the Italian community at that time um, and as such was uh, singled out um, uh, by the uh, Central uh, Intelligence Bureau uh, as being a potential sort of ringleader uh, should the Japanese invade. Um, yeah, so he was removed from the community by the police um, just after the, the raids on Darwin when uh, the paranoia about Japanese invasion reached its peak. Wow, okay. Yeah, so he was removed to a camp, or to the police, the local police station, then to Gaythorn Barracks in Brisbane, where he was a, a bit of sleeping on concrete floors. Uh, it's now an army base. Um, and then he was, he was um, uh, trained down to uh, Loveday Camp in, in uh, South Australia, where he spent the next two, over two years. Um, okay, it must so, have been very difficult for him. Oh, it was really difficult. And um, my family is still upset when they talk about it. My auntie, who sadly passed away last year, was still in tears, like oh. talking about uh, the effects of that time um, on our family and particularly her. And mm. yeah, um, okay. yeah, so yeah, very difficult. And it, it just goes to show how sort of indefinite tension where you don't know when you're going to be released, how that can affect you, and, and it will go down through the generations too. So he, my grandfather had young children, um, whom he didn't see for two years. My, uh, when my father, my father had never really met his father because he was taken away uh, when my father was like nine months, quite, quite little. So when my okay. father came back, he was sort of between two and three mm -hmm. uh, and didn't know who his father was. So, you know, that was the first sort of, okay. uh, Must of have been damage. Very, yeah, very damaging yeah. to the family. Yeah, yeah, it was. And very shameful. Mm. And uh, when you're labelled a criminal, essentially, like a, a fifth columnist is a pretty severe um, uh, label, um, it's shameful. And they, they just never talked about it. And they burnt all their correspondence. The only things that survive are a jewellery box that he, he made, or a couple of jewellery boxes and a bit of jewellery. Um, that he made um, in workshops that were set up in the camps to sort of um, occupy the internees during the um, interminable uh, boredom of um, internment. And this happened all in Australia? This is in Australia. You yeah, would there think are, there that are things like that don't happen here, no, they happen there, elsewhere. 
Yeah, well, it happened right through the Allied world uh, in, 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 in the US, in Canada, uh, Great Britain, and in South Africa to, some, to a smaller Strange. extent. Strange, never heard about this before. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, the, um, the, the Australian War Memorial doesn't mention the internment of um, naturalised British subjects in its internment display, so basically they've got a great big swastika there and, and they sort of really demonise them as the yeah. sort of fifth colonists, which was never really proven. Okay. Um, so, when did you start to get sort of um, attention or interest in the refugee crisis that's happening here? I mean, was it sort of during this last few years, or because it's been going on for the last yeah, years? Yeah, yeah. Um, th this, this, yeah. I, I had been aware of it, um, especially during the Howard years, as mm. everybody was. Um, I thought there might have been some concessions. <coughs> excuse me. When um, uh, Rudd came to power, but uh, sadly that has not uh, transpired, and. Um, things are sort of even worse, um, to, to my view. Um, so, yeah, it, it's sort of, I, I was dimly aware of it, but it wasn't until Safta, my friend, um, who I've known for a, a long time, we've been very good friends, um, invited me to come out to Villawood to um, uh, make some work with the uh, refugees there. Um, so, which I've been doing now for about six months. And okay. I've been having a really good time and I've made some good friends. All right, excellent. And uh, moving on um, to Safdar. Uh, so Safdar Ahmed is a lecturer at the University of Sydney and a co-founder with Omid Tofigian of the Refugee Art Project. He recently completed a PhD on modern Islamic reformist ideologies with Sydney University's Department of Arabic and Islamic Studies and hopes to continue to study and work in academia. He is a visual artist in his free time and is currently working with artists in Villawood Detention Centre. So Safdar, again, thank you very much for mm. coming. Thank to you show. for having me. No worries. Um, so tell me again about, first of all, about your interest in, in this issue and then about your idea of using sort of your capabilities, your, you know, whatever you have control over to help them in that way. Sure. Um, I suppose, um, like many people, I have followed refugee issues for a number of years but I had no pretext to really get involved and I didn't know how to go about it, how to visit the centres or who to meet or, or what to do when I got there. Um, and it was only last year actually when I was talking to my friend and co-founder of the project, Omid, about refugees. He mentioned that he was going in and um, translating and helping a number of Iranian refugees inside Villawood. And then, um, then I decided to go in with him and um, we were also talking a lot about art uh, and we're interested in art. I mean, I met Anton at art school, so we've maintained a good friendship uh, through art for many years. Uh, and then the penny just dropped uh, to do something artistic, to go in and do an art project uh, to allow the asylum seekers within the center to express themselves through drawing and painting. And that seemed like something um, unique uh, because uh, very few people know anything about refugees and asylum seekers. So uh, to, do, to do something artistic and creative seemed like a great opportunity for them to get their voices mm. out of the detention centre. So tell me then about your sort of impressions about asylum seekers before you met them and now six months later after you've met them. Yeah, I didn't know anybody when I uh, first arrived, but um, I, I soon made a few good friends. Um, I simply sat down in the visitor's room and, and took out a, a, a sketch pad and started drawing a portrait and pretty soon um, there was a table full of people. So um, uh, from that point um, the, the project uh, has grown. Um, so um, yeah, we've mm. seen an extraordinary uh, range of work, haven't we? 
Yeah, indeed. Um, I guess um, I feel the same. I didn't know what to expect when I first went in there. Um, I didn't know if the uh, asylum seekers would be interested in making art. I thought they might have bigger things to worry about, more important issues to address. So it was really um, encouraging and wonderful to strike up friendships with them first uh, and to create these lessons to which more and more people joined and wanted to be a part of. Okay, great. And uh, just uh, another reminder to our listeners that if you do want to take part, um, you can call us on Sydney number 9724 Um So tell us about the art project you guys are having, I think, next week, right? Uh, yeah, we've got an exhibition um, and it's opening on the 20th of June at Sydney's Mori Gallery, which is very close to Town Hall Station. Um, and um, it's the culmination of many months of art classes uh, and we've got a whole range of works by refugees from all over the world. We've got um, a lot of uh, artists or refugees from Afghanistan who are actually the largest community, I think, within the detention centres. We've got a number of Tamil artists from Sri Lanka, uh, as well as a number from Ira Iran, Iraq, uh, the Kurdish regions of the Middle East, North Africa, Indonesia, so a whole range of people contributing to this exhibition and telling their stories. Okay. Um, I had a chance to look at some of the artists' work uh, from the times uh, that I was fortunate enough to visit Villawood, and it just it seemed very depressing to me. It was dry trees or crying eyes. Is it all like that with, with refugees, or did you sort of have a, a variety of uh, moods and art uh, skills, I guess? Yeah, uh, it's not all doom and gloom. I think we've got uh, darkness and light. Um, obviously, we've got a number of works which refer to the experience of being a refugee. So there are themes that address war, uh, conflict, political persecution, the things people are running away from. Um, of course, we've also got a number of works which address what it's like to be in detention, and that's a very depressing place to be. So they are expressing their feeling of entrapment and their feeling of hopelessness. Okay. However, we've also got a lot of very, I think, inspiring works. Um, refugees often depict their vision of the future. They see themselves as future Australians, and we've got a lot of very hopeful works in that category, which, which I think are very inspiring. Okay, that's very good. Um, going back to you, Anton. Um, I mean, this is very interesting for me, of course, the fact that, you know, you actually have your family that has gone through this. Um, do you see something like that um, in the detention centers that, you know, people who are otherwise just normal human beings who are just under very difficult circumstances uh, and who, um, you know, are changing because of it? I think so, yeah. Um, I think that the art does, it gives them something to do. Like, uh, they keep coming back and they keep producing work each week that we go back. Um, and they're always starting new, new works. Um, and as Safta said, there's, a, there's an incredible variety of work. Um, we've seen work, obviously the paintings and the drawings, um, the good and the bad themes, but work made from rubbish. Um, like someone will, will, will just go and collect uh, rubbish from around the camp and sort of stick it down onto found bits of cardboard. But he's very selective in the way he'll stick something down. He will have like a section from the Quran next to like a Coke bottle or like a billiard ball. Like he's, <laughs> he really mixes it up. Okay. Like right. he, he's, he's just, <laughs> it's a symptom of what it's like to be sort of in that situation like mm. this. He's 
trying to put put it all together. And most of the people that are taking part in this, they're not artists uh, usually. I mean, they're no. either, you know, uh, professionals or just lay people. All types, all types. Um, there's a lot of lay people there who have who are sort of quite untrained. Um, but you will get some very surprising results out of that. You will get someone that will you will look at them and go, "Whoa, where did that come from?" Hmm. And uh, this extraordinary concentration um, uh, you, you find, um, and extraordinary uh, detail in the work, um, uh, and um, and some of it's quite uplifting. Like you, you'll get a lot of sunsets. You'll get a lot of um, sort of escapist type stuff. They they. Hmm. It's like I, I want to be somewhere else. I don't want to be here, so I'll I will I will make a work about this beach scene. We've had had a bit of that, and obviously to the gloomy stuff where you know some of it can be quite horrific, especially when they um, remember their uh, past experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is actually a very interesting point. Um, I'm going to um, tell you guys a secret which I have been keeping from you mm-hmm. and from the listeners. Um, I have also gone to Christmas Island uh, about a, sort of a month before Anne Rose w- went, and it was a very sort of a very interesting, um, rewarding experience, which of course showed me uh, in a very ugly part of the world, uh, and also very beautiful because it's all green. But this is this was something which is very interesting for me is that the fact you're talking to someone and then that someone tells you, oh, my whole family died with a grenade right in front of me, mm-hmm. you know, and you just you don't know what to say. Or we'd be sort of teaching them English and we say, can you say can't? And they say, yes. Say it in a sentence. I can't sleep at night because I keep getting nightmares of people chasing us. And so it's very confronting and you really don't know what to do about it. And you feel guilty even though, you know, it's not your fault and you really can't do anything about it. So did you, first of all, I mean, this is a question for you guys, Anton and Safdar, but also to Anna Rose. Mm. Did you go through something like this where, you know, in his way of conveying or in his way of... Uh, expressing himself through art, he's sort of, you know, laid uh, a very heavy load on you guys? Um, I think when you develop a friendship or a relationship with someone in that environment, it's very difficult to not feel upset on their behalf. Um, having said that, I think the what's really pleased me about our exhibition is that they've had the chance to express those anxieties those traumas through their art and I hope that gives them some point of therapy. Um, For instance we do have a number of works by detainees whose families are are back in their home country and they're very sad works because we've got portraits of children who've been left behind. So you've got a man in detention for two and a half years and he can't see his daughter grow up and he's painting her portrait and that's very sad. Um, So obviously I think that that's had an effect on us but we're hopeful. We're still, um, I think, seeing the positives in this exhibition and grateful that they can express those things and hopefully get some uh, therapy through that. Okay, great. Uh, what about you, Anton? Have you had sort of the same experiences? or? Yeah, I've had experiences. Um, there was one particular man who, who made a cartoon that sort of summed up his, his whole um, experience, like flight from Afghanistan, um, across in the boat to to the uh, the camp here in Australia, um, uh, but he was unable to work after that piece because um, he told me that both of his boys had been killed uh, by the Taliban. Oh. So um, that was extremely upsetting, and I didn't know what to say after that. But, mm. 
he hasn't been really able to work since that first drawing. So he's okay. a lot of them are undergoing that sort of trauma. Mm. But generally, I mean, the, the you know that sort of way of expressing themselves and venting into art, it's it's been quite helpful, hasn't it? Though, I think so. Yeah, yeah. From our point of view, yeah. Um, and we're told that you know what we are doing is is quite valuable, mm. um, and we're always being thanked, and um, people are quite grateful to have us around. I mean, having said that, like, I, we are just there to. Um, facilitate some sort of conversation about what's going on um, in the, the way that we know how, which is yeah. through our practices. Um, and that's something unique. And um, um, and it, because it is not sort of structured, um, there are no rules, so we can get to the truth. Like, we can get to sort of the essence of things because we haven't sort of bound, we're not bound by any sort of political uh, dogma mm -hmm. or anything like that. Okay, great. Uh, and, it, and I guess it's worth pointing out that we're not trained art therapists, so we're really yeah. going in there as, important. Yeah. as artists, um, and uh, we, we consider them our friends, so it's a very informal, relaxed environment. We're not, we're not like the caseworkers or the psychologists yeah. who are there to simply uh, tick a box. We, sort of, we see this as an ongoing project, um, and uh, these are our friends and colleagues, if you like. All right, great. Yeah. Um, Anna Rose, what about you? Uh, tell me about your experiences in that regard. Um, I think that's one of the things I found most strange was the kind of normalisation of tragedy and that someone who's grown up in a quite a privileged setting not particularly experienced much in the way of tragedy in my life um, to be hanging out with people who have had just these breathtakingly <coughs> terrible things happen to them but then just have to keep living is the the fact of it like you'll hang out with people who've lost their entire family, their babies, um, who still have to get up in the morning, still have to brush their teeth and, you know, carry on with their day. Um, and it's kind of like, it's not like a movie where it's all really emotional all the time and you're always, you know, having these deep conversations. You've just got to try and get through the day. And I kind of, I, I don't know, I feel like I almost don't have the right to be particularly and terribly affected by it because when people are dealing with stuff on such a deeper level that I have no understanding of myself, it's not really my place to kind of adopt their tragedy as mine. That's a bit patronising, I almost feel. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, has it changed you in any way? I mean, of course, the only violence you, uh, most of us see in our lifetimes is just from movies. Mm. And that's one way that movies really corrupt our lives. Mm. But, um, you know, see you know, seeing people who have gone through that and, you know, and seeing it in their eyes, has it, you know, changed you as well? Um, I think it's made me realise how much stronger people are than I ever realised and how much more people can deal with and can get through and the strength of their characters to be able to survive, simply survive, like, no more than that. The things people can survive is amazing, I think. The deaths of their families, the distance for years and years from everyone they love the massive injustice that is the detention center system that people survive it and survive it with their sense of humor and still their ability to be happy i think is just phenomenal mm. and i think i have um i have more of a respect i think for humanity than i did before um but also for people who are different to me because when you grow up in the Western world, you see the wars on TV every single day. It's so 
not it's you're dulled to it you don't yeah, it doesn't mean anything it. Yeah. it doesn't it doesn't have anything to do kind of with reality it's just something that's always there um but so alien and so far away at the same time that it doesn't seem real until you do meet the people who were in those wars and who ran from those wars and got themselves out of going to be killed and then it's really indicative of the fact that we're so dulled to this that people in our society can just kind of be like well, they shouldn't really have ran, you know, we don't want our taxes to go to this. It's a bit ridiculous, really, so, mm. yeah. Uh, this brings me to my next question. Um, when you've gone there, and for you guys as well, um, when you've sort of had this intimate experience with, with the refugees and asylum seekers, um, what does your environment, your family, your friends, what do they have to say about it? I mean, are they sort of supportive of you? Are they, um, you know, um, accusing you of being, you know, um, an Australian or something? I mean, I can see from Anna Rose that you were so um, inspired by them, you became Muslim, which is... (laughs) (laughs) Sort of. Sort of. And the same with Anton. I mean, I'm guessing you didn't have a beard and a goatee before you met them. Or did you? I don't know. Um... (laughs) <laughs> no, that was before, before okay. Villawood. <laughs> right. It would have been very poetic if... But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no Actually, right. no, I started growing it after a trip out to the uh, internment camps out west. Okay. I took my family out on a couple of weeks uh, trip out to Hay, uh, then south to Melbourne, uh, and visited maybe uh, six or so camps, or the present-day sites of camps and museums along the way, and the beards that have remained after that trip. Okay. So it's, it's more of a uh, lifestyle convenience rather than a political position or anything uh, like that. <laughs> yeah, you no could worries. say that. We, we <laughs> won't spend too much time <laughs> on that. <laughs> no, yeah. so, so what has been the, uh, the feedback that you've been getting from people around you? Oh, extremely positive. Extremely positive. Okay. Um, yeah, my family's been very um, supportive. Um, uh, and any friend who I've talked to has been very uh, supportive. I've also had an exhibition this year, and um, which, which is sort of about my grandfather's interment. And um, the people, once they had heard that I was doing this project, very supportive and very curious and wanting to know about, you know, wow, what's it like being in there and what are they doing? I, I want to see what, I want to see what they, uh, they make in there. And um, so it's been very, very positive. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So I've been accused of being any un-Australian or, or anything like that. Um, uh, this has been my experience as well, and a lot of people as well have had that experience. So it's very mm. strange when, for example, you have an online poll or you know a phone poll or mm. something yeah, that asks, it is. you know, uh, it is. are you for or against? You know, you'd have 70, 80 percent of people being against, you know, uh, immigration. They'd be against uh, taking in more asylum seekers. Um, so what has your experience been? Uh, and Rose? with that, I think that is the kind of indicative of the dehumanization of it in that when people are confronted by someone who has seen the human aspect or is a person re- who has been there and seen that kind of person, um, people can't have those views anymore, can't see those people as just um, a theory or you know a policy or that kind of thing, or, or at least too frightened to display that view to someone who so obviously thinks differently and has seen the people to back up their thoughts. Mm. Well, what do you think? I mean, obviously the majority of people, because of one reason or another, are against you know a clear humanitarian uh, problem. What do you think um, is the way to to change to you know shift that sort of opinion? I mean, if we have you know continuous media campaigns 
you know, trying to make uh, asylum seekers look like criminals and terrorists. Mm -hmm. You have uh, politicians making, you know, um, you know, making or breaking their political career uh, based on, you know, how they deal with the um, crises like that. I mean, I think today as well, I heard in the news uh, there was another um, um, riot in Christmas Island, and it was responded to with um, beanbag um, mm -hmm. bullets. Which, I mean, you might hear it and think that's a cute name. I mean, that doesn't really hurt anything. I know people in Egypt who were shot by these uh, beanbag bullets, and it's actually very dangerous because they're very small bullets that, you know, break apart, and they, they're still flying at very high velocity. And when they hit you, they, they um, you know, break bones. They, they uh, embed themselves in um, veins. So they're very dangerous, you know. And, and um, so these people are in this sort of position. And everybody seems to be okay with it. I mean, if it happened elsewhere, it would be, you know, a massive outcry. Um, so w what in our, you know, power and our limited power are we able to do to try and shift this sort of thing? Um, I think I'd second what Anna Rose says. I think education is, is the tool. I think um, it's true that many polls look awful, but you need to remember the way the question is phrased. And mm -hmm. often it follows a media report about the amount of money that is seen to be wasted on refugees or their potential, uh, the supposedly criminal nature of, of what happens in the centres. So uh, the slant, uh, the negative slant comes from above. I think it's political, it's driven by the media, but most Australians simply don't know about refugees. And when you tell them the truth and when they find out about the real stories and the human uh, dimension to this this whole issue, I think uh, then their minds are quite easily changed. And um, also, like Anton, um, my family and all of my friends have been extremely supportive and mostly curious because they, they too don't know anything about refugees. Mm -hmm. So someone who, who will support a negative poll one day might change their view, um, I think, uh, if they simply learn a little more. Okay, that's great. Um, so it's just basically getting getting the word out there, really. I'd hope so. Yeah. 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 Okay, that's great. That's excellent. All right, uh, and now in a few minutes we will be having as a guest also um, Alex Pagliaro from Amnesty International. Uh, so we will go on a break, and we will back. We will be back in one minute. At least 28 asylum seekers are known to have died, and authorities have warned the toll is likely to rise. The mainstream Australians have been sold down the drain. Increasing numbers of culturally incompatible refugees and migrants are entering our country. And of course, every government goes up the With no end in sight to the current wave of asylum seekers, nine years can reveal the true welfare cost to Australian taxpayers. And welcome back. Um, we have with us now over the phone um, Alex Pagliara from Amnesty International. Um, Alex, how are you? Good, thanks. How are you going? Very good. Thank you for making the time to speak with us today. No problem. So you're in Melbourne today, aren't you? No, no, I'm in Sydney. Actually. Are you in Sydney? Yeah. And they told me you're in Melbourne. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm based in Melbourne, but I'm up in Sydney for the week. Okay, I'm very upset. I'm going to talk to Graham about this. <laughs> All right. Um, so um, tell us a bit about um, Amnesty International, sort of, uh, first of all, about their work with the um, refugees and asylum seekers in Australia. 
Well, we've been working on this issue for more than 10 years now in Australia, um, and so you know have have a very long history on you know on everything to do with refugees and human rights in this country, and so. You know, we've we've seen, I suppose, some some low points and some high points over the years, and and, and you know, in about 2007, the the Rudd government did make some some great changes. And in, in late 2007, early 2008, they they ended uh, the Pacific Solution, they ended TPVs, they um, they you know introduced sort of new detention values, which looked like detention was genuinely going to be used as a last resort. However, you know, I suppose what we've seen in in more recent times is um, that we've got, we've started to go backwards, and so really, you know, in the, in the last year, we've been we've been focusing on re- responding to those policies and and working, you know, with the government, with the Department of Immigration, with the Australian public to um, to try and um, to try and change those policies. Um, but but the other thing that we've really been focusing on beyond just the policies is talking to. Um, talking to the Australian community about refugees and about asylum seekers and and the sort of the facts behind behind the headlines and the personal stories behind the headlines because I think they're the two the two things that are really missing from this debate and really um, you know I suppose this causing is a lot of the actually one issue um, Alex that we were talking about before which is that the majority of people because they don't understand because they haven't really come into close personal contact with any of the asylum seekers they've just seen it as a an issue on television which uh, means you know more money for them than it means I mean they look at it in more economic terms than they do in humanitarian terms so how has your work um, been effective so far in in getting the sort of the story out there yeah. to the general public well, we actually did a whole lot of research um, mid last year into public attitudes towards asylum seekers, and we did some, um, you know, we sort of did focus groups and some um, uh, qualitative research, and then did a whole lot of polling as well. And and really, what we found uh, was that you know the attitudes in the community that are that, that sort of that hostility towards asylum seekers is yeah is is really fundamentally based not on on racism or a lack of compassion it is based on people um not knowing not knowing the the truth behind this issue and that you know just getting bombarded by this idea of border security and this idea that the asylum seekers are in some way breaking the rules or are you know legal um you know queue jumpers all all that sort of rhetoric that is out there in the public domain and is so strong um and is completely wrong is you know is, has um, has firstly dehumanised asylum seekers, and and secondly you know convinced the public that that yeah yeah there's there's a there's moral value in being anti-asylum seekers when when in reality I think if if all Australians sort of yeah knew the facts and had those the personal stories of asylum seekers who have come to Australia, they um they would see that it actually is, you know, accepting asylum seekers and, and helping asylum seekers is totally in line with Australian values and, you know, is it's all about, um, you know, helping people out that are, mm. you know, down on their luck and, you know, some of the most vulnerable people in the world. So, you know, it's it's really our campaign is about combating those myths and, um, yeah, and getting um, getting some of the, the reality of the situation out into the public domain. And, and we are, you know, we're doing that. We've, we've run advertising all over the country and we... Are um, you know continuing to push out a whole range of community events that are focused on that, and you know in in Liverpool and in Western Sydney we have you know, sort of many many activities all over the place that um that are working towards towards this aim. Okay, um, 
I also wanted to ask you about, um, you know, some of these myths. For example, there was, um, you know, a, a um, piece of information, I don't know if it was true or not, um, which was uh, sort of making the rounds a few weeks ago uh, that says the majority of, um, you know, uh, asylum seekers who make Australia their home eventually um, don't have work, even though, you know, five years after they've uh, uh, received their visa, they're still not working. So, uh, and I, I was pretty sure that there was some sort of, you know, uh, play with that statistic. Yeah, like, you know, as always, people take these statistics and, and use them to, to back up, you know, whatever message they're trying to get out and so seem to kind of distort these statistics. And um, the statistics that did come out showed, you know, showed uh, a number of it that, are, that, are, that a portion of asylum seekers or, you know, past asylum seekers um, who are now Australian citizens yeah, to, to continue to, to be on welfare you know, four or five years after they had got you know, their permanent residency. However, what that didn't show was the, um, the, the fact that that was actually very... In the number of refugees is actually, on welfare is actually quite in line with the number of you know, non-refugee Australian citizens on welfare. And you know, we're not talking... When we say welfare, that's a very big term. We're not talking about people just you know sitting at home and collecting money from the government we're talking about people who are studying you know people that are still trying to learn english people that are um you know still getting on their feet a lot of people who are working but um but like many australians um you know qualify for a small amount of welfare to you know to assist them while you know while they're going through a transition period and when you think about what these people have gone through Five years is not really that long mm. to learn a whole new language, learn a whole new culture, you know, get skilled up um, and, you know, and get ready to, to integrate into society. And, you know, that you just have to hear the stories of people that have been here for more than five years, you know, for 10 years or 15 years, who are totally, um, you know, part of Australian society and are, are you know, amazing contributors to, to this country. And, you know, I've met so many people who... Who are you know are studying you know, medicine and, and law and you know are doing trades and are you know are, are compl- so grateful to Australia and so um, you know so dedicated to the idea of becoming really you know sort of high value citizens if you like that um, mm. that ma- making the most of the opportunity that this country has given to them and I think if more Australians heard those stories and and saw that you know the real the reality behind the refugee experience, then, um, then you know, we'd all be a lot better off. Um, so, um, I mean, I guess um, Amnesty uh, is one of those organizations that has a better awareness than most of us. Would you say, Alex, that um, the refugee and the asylum seeker experience in Australia has been, by and large, a successful venture? Absolutely, without doubt. I mean, the, the Refugee Council of Australia recently has um, has done some research into refugee contributions to Australia and sort of done economic modelling around um, around how yeah how you know whether or not we basically you know gain money or lose money by accepting refugees and by far and large refugees become such you know positive members of society because they are so driven to succeed because you know of what they've gone through to come to Australia they want to make the most of it so you know in the end Australia accepting refugees is a you know is a positive economic benefit to this country but um but even beyond you know the the financial side of it um you know it it enriches us all as people to be able to um 
to, to offer protection to, um, to people that are fleeing you know, war and terror and persecution. And I think um, you know, it's something we should all feel really proud of and, and mm. feel really honoured almost to be in a position as a country to be able to help out um, some of the people that you know, are, are genuinely some of the most in need people in the whole world. That's great. That's excellent. Um, so tell us then, Alex, about the um, the government's new plan to um, send people to, I mean, send some of the asylum seekers onto um, uh, Malaysia. I mean, what's what's the big problem with that? I mean, if they're getting genuine refugees, um, what's the big um, hoo-ha about sending, you know, asylum seekers to mm. refugee centers in Malaysia? Well, there are a number of problems with this deal, and Amnesty okay. International has, you know, been very vocal over the past um, few weeks about why this is just a terrible, terrible idea. I mean, I suppose the the first thing is that um, the, the, these 800 asylum seekers who we're swapping with 4,000, um, you know, 4,000 people who have who have just sought asylum in Australia, in sorry, in Malaysia, um, you know. We are sending we're sending these 800 people back to a country where Amnesty International has evidence and you know has done extensive research in that country and found that you know, asylum seekers are subjected to um, to caning, which you know might seem like a um, you know a fairly uh, it might seem like a minor kind of um, punishment, but you know this is not just a sort of a slap on the wrist. This is you know very um, uh, very, um, in, you know, intense punishment where it breaks skins and it, it breaks people's skin and causes welts and is a really brutal form of um, form of punishment. And so that's, you know, we're sending people back to that. We're sending people back to, um, you know, to to be rounded up by vigilante groups that sort of roam the street in Malaysia, collecting people without um, without proper papers. Um, we're we're sending people back to. You know the the real possibility of exploitation and sexual violence and a whole range of awful things that you know we found to be extremely prevalent among asylum seeker and refugee communities in Malaysia. Um, and so and beyond that, I mean, this still really undermines the refugee convention which Australia has signed and Malaysia has not. So you know that there's it's just really seriously problematic if Australia, a country that is supposed to be you know a, a leader in human rights and you know, upholding these really important um, international instruments of international law is trying to get around them and trying to you know, offload 800 people who are our responsibility and we should be protecting to Malaysia. And while it's great that we're accepting the you know 4,000 4, extra people from Malaysia and giving them protection, there's just absolutely no need to link that to sending 800 people back to face sort of you know some horrific conditions in Malaysia. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Alex. Alex, tell us, um, is Amnesty International doing anything next week? Next week is Refugee Week, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, we are doing um, a, a whole bunch of things. I think, you know, we have now nearly more than 100 um, events happening all around the country. And, I mean, I know just, just in Western Sydney, we are working with the Liverpool Council and the Migrant Resource Centre to host events. We're working with, um, you know, multiple high schools all around Western Sydney, like... Um, um, Lenina and Liverpool Girls, uh, where we're working with you know community groups to um, to film the stories of of refugees who are living in the community out there. We're having forums around the community. We're having workshops um, that where we're we're talking about these facts and these issues and, and you know help skilling up basically people in um, in Western Sydney to be able to go out and and have the conversation about refugees with people in a way that you know can 
sort of start to um, hopefully change the, you know, change the way that people talk about this issue and think about this issue, having, you know, screenings of, of movies and I think in the Liverpool Library there's going to be an exhibition all week with speakers and, um, and photos of, of refugees in Australia. So, you know, there's, there's a, a you know, lot of things happening around the country and, you know, even in, in your area. So right, I would encourage, cool. yeah, everyone listening to, to get involved and, and get on the um, Amnesty website and find an event. Okay, so that was there. my next question. Is uh, on the Amnesty website there all these uh, events will be listed? Yeah, absolutely. So if you go to um, www.amnesty.org.au slash refugee events, um, yeah, you, there's a, there's a map there that shows you where where all the events are around around the country actually, and you can um, yeah look into to what's going on in the Liverpool area. And you know if if that's you know if that doesn't does you can't find anything there, you, I would love people to to get in touch with us and host their own event or um, or you know find out other ways that they can help the campaign and get involved in the campaign. And um, yeah, so if, you know. Everyone is more than welcome to email us at um, at rethinkrefugees at amnesty.org.au and you know, we'll be in touch. That's excellent. Uh, Alex Pagliaro, uh, campaign director, was it? Uh, campaign coordinator. Campaign coordinator for Amnesty International. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Nassar. Lovely to speak Have to you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, dear listeners, uh, it is now 9 o'clock, so that's the um, time for our evening uh, news segment. So, um, And that'll take about 15 minutes. So after that, we will get back in touch with you. Uh, Thank you for listening and see you at uh, 9.15. At least 28 asylum seekers are known to have died and authorities have warned the toll is likely to rise. So mainstream Australians have been sold down the drain, increasing numbers of culturally incompatible refugees and migrants are entering our country. And of course, every government goes up here. With no end in sight to the current wave of asylum seekers, nine years can reveal the true welfare cost to Australian taxpayers. This is a no detention service has got to go! Refugees! Racism! Detention centers got to go! Refugees! Racism! Detention centers!